0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Margarita, a researcher here at the Institute of Art and Ideas.
2: And I'm Harry, and I'm the head of politics here at the Institute of Art and Ideas.
1: Today, we've got the economics of almost everything, featuring chief economics commentator for the Financial Times, Martin Wolf, Yale Law Professor Daniel Markowitz, and Madeline Pennington, head of research at Theos, our partner for this event. This took place in 2023 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Harry, tell us a bit about this debate.
2: So this debate is about rethinking economics. It questions whether productivity is going to continue to plateau, as we've seen in much of the West, or if it will hopefully one day rise, and it will confront the role of technology in this issue. Productivity is effectively the most important part of economics, and why we've seen so much success since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Indeed, the economics of almost everything is a paraphrase of a Paul Krugman quote, saying that productivity is almost everything, but perhaps not quite. Productivity being the output per worker, as in the more you can produce with the same amount of input, which allows for more people to produce more stuff, which in turn allows everyone to benefit, at least is the goal. However, we've seen in recent years that technology hasn't advanced in ways that would improve our productivity, and it has stagnated. I mean, I believe in the UK, it's around 0.1% growth uh, over the last decade, which is somewhat why, you might argue that the economy is languishing somewhat. And I, I do believe that we have an amazing panel on this today. The key disagreement, of course, between Martin Wolf, who is a renowned economics journalist and uh, a favourite of the Financial Times, taking a rather pessimistic but a definitely well-grounded argument compared to Daniel Markowitz, who is much more in the Post-growth, we need to rethink all of our economies as we have diminishing marginal returns, and perhaps working ever harder for ever more return is not really going to make anyone that much better off. And of course, Madeline Payne's been coming along, bringing a more theological, but also social perspective on these issues. I think all too often economists get together and talk in numbers and forget that there are actually real people within them and so it's it's wonderful to have her perspective as well contrasted with Daniel and Martin who are both very theoretical and very economics-y but perhaps somewhat far removed from the day-to-day implications.
1: Wow, that was a great introduction. See, this is why you're head of politics. (laughs) Now, before we get into the debate, remember, if you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
2: Now it's time to welcome our host, Hilary Lawson, to Philosophy for Our Times. Thank you.
3: Uh, Productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything, claimed Paul Cudman. Throughout the 20th century, productivity, that's the average level of output for each hour worked, improved dramatically across the developed world, a greater increase than in the previous 2,000 years. But since the 2008 financial crisis, despite computerisation and the internet, Productivity growth in many countries has been low, static, or even in the case of Japan, falling. Has something gone fundamentally wrong, and will the 20th century prove to be a unique event? Might technology itself be the problem, seemingly creating solutions, but in fact encouraging pointless activity? Or would we be more productive if we worked less more radically is the mistake to focus on productivity and output in the first place, and should we instead change how we value our activities and our time? So with me to address this central topic, we have a panel ideally placed to diagnose the problem and find the solutions. On my far left, Martin Wolf is the chief economics commentator of the Financial Times. He's widely regarded as one of the most influential economics journalists in the world. Madeleine Pennington is Head of Research at Theos, the UK's leading religion and society think tank. She holds a doctorate in theology from Oxford, and Daniel Markovitz is a Yale professor and legal scholar. His best-selling book, The Meritocracy Trap, made the case that far from being egalitarian, meritocracy exacerbates inequality and undermines democracy. So. I'm going to give each of them just three minutes to address the topic and answer our central question. Has something gone fundamentally wrong with productivity and will the huge gains of the 20th century prove unique?
4: Martin. Probably. As in, yes, the period of the 20th century is likely to prove unique. And the reasons for this are, first and most important, we did all the a huge amount, perhaps most of the really easy stuff. We had a series of technological and societal breakthroughs, which I won't be able to go through in detail, in the late 19th through the 20th century, which allowed us to transform almost everything we did. And that had the consequence of reshaping the way we, where we live, we urbanized, how we <coughs> consume things, how we could move, uh, how we could manage health, and I can go through many more. And at the end of all that, we live much closer to our natural lifespans. We've already reduced, which is part of productivity, my infant mortality by 100 hundredfold. Uh, we have uh, got rid of all the, pretty well all the agricultural workers, and we are rapidly doing the same to manufacturing. So... That's a huge technological revolution we can't do again. Second, the dominant um, technological revolution of our time is quite narrow. It's information and communications technology. We think there's never been anything like this before. It certainly be, but it's nothing like the scale of all the things that happened before. Third, what we are left with in our economy predominantly services, is immeasurably more difficult to transform from the point of view of productivity. And I don't believe even AI is really going to change that. Just think, of education, how we teach in schools, all the rest of it. I can go through very many more examples of that. We got to the, pretty well, getting closer to the limit on health, things like that. So we can't do that very easily, service transformation. And finally, as we all know, which is Fred Hirsch's great point, that as we get richer, we get keener and keener on positional goods. The classic positional good is a nice home in the home countries. And nice homes in the home countries are scarce, particularly given our political system, and they're never going to be abundant. So the increases in real incomes per head that we experience in the 20th century, and this is a point made in a wonderful book by Robert Gordon, will not be repeated. Thank you, Martin.
5: Thank you. Well, we couldn't be coming at this from a um, more different direction in some ways, but if uh, Martin's answer was probably then mine is sort of. So I guess we're (laughs) coming at it at the the sort of ending in the same place. And I want to start by thinking about the work of a care worker and what that means for productivity. So perhaps somebody that you love relies on the work of a professional care worker and that care worker has to make two visits an hour to get through their list that day. If they're then asked to make four visits an hour, what bit of care doesn't then happen? Maybe your relative doesn't get a shower. Maybe they um, have a new key symptom. They really should go and see the doctor, but they don't because it was missed. And all of this shows that in some jobs, there, are, there is just a sort of an irreducible quality, which is human attention. And so therefore, it's very, very difficult, as Martin said, to reduce that. Um, now, I don't raise this to suggest um, from a values point of view, we shouldn't care about productivity at all. Actually, I think that we should for all sorts of reasons. But to fact that productivity itself is a relative measure, uh, it doesn't actually tell you what a reasonable input is, what an acceptable output is. It doesn't tell you what's core or what can be stripped away. Um, It just gives you the input and the output. That produces a number, and we generally expect that number to grow. So that means that we have to be always sort of interpreting our productivity measures through something else. And I would say that's partly the kind of economy we're building, but it's also our values. So on the kind of economy we're building, then um, obviously the care example is is again relevant because more and more of our jobs are going to be like that. Um, The writer David Goodhart says that that the... um, quintessential 21st century job will eventually be a dementia nurse, um, which is basically those jobs that can't be automated. Um, Obviously, the environmental crisis also asks something very differently of us economically. In terms of our moral values, then yes, um, we want employment and we don't want to just strip back um, seemingly um, inefficient jobs. But but more than that, a job isn't actually just financial. It's not just about... Um, giving somebody a salary and a wage. It's actually the link between the household and the rest of the community or the the sort of prosperity in the community of the nation. And underlying all of that, there's also spiritual issues. So as I mentioned, um, productivity measured in terms of input and output and productivity growth, this, this key determinant of living standards. But that is an inherently limitless measure that can go on and on. If we're wanting it just to grow, then we'll be disappointed because fundamentally, humans are limited, we're limited beings on a limited planet in a limited system. Um, and so there's a there's almost a sort of anthropological question underlying all of this in the end. Um, so we have a conundrum, I guess, and um, in lots of ways, the gains of the 20th century were unsustainable, apart from anything else. But we can either look back, in my view, nostalgically on those gains, or we can dig deeper and do a bit of that sort of moral and spiritual excavation of the topic of productivity now. And I think that is what is really going to address the crisis of the 21st century. Every century is unique. We are in a unique century ourselves. So let's get to it. I think it will be clear from what I have said, what I think the the, the right choice of those two is.
6: Thank you, Madeline. Daniel. Great, thank you. Uh, And thank you all for coming inside on a sunny day. I wanna use my three minutes to make four points. Um, First, in the past, Almost everybody was desperately poor before the Productivity Revolution. In 1800, 80% of the world's population lived on the equivalent of less than $2 a day, just in material deprivation that's hard to imagine. Um, The Productivity Revolution is what ended that. And it ended that by thinking of work in a particular way. This is my second point. Uh, Adam Smith says, near the end of the wealth of nations, that the only purpose of production is consumption. And in a world in which almost everybody is desperately poor, that principle has a kind of a grim moral logic. Because when you work to make things that other people need, you relieve dire, dire needs. And that's a moral imperative in a world in which 80% of the people are living on less than $2 a day. Second point, though, is that the ability to flourish by consuming material stuff is bounded in our lives. We can consume only so much before we get sated. And at some point of every good and even money, more no longer makes us better off. That point is studied now actually by social psychologists, and we are nearer to it than we think. Uh, In the United States today, GDP per capita is high enough that in principle if there were no inequality, effectively every US American could have enough stuff produced by production with the sole aim of consumption, to satisfy every material need that can make a human life go better. So we are reaching the point at which the drive for productivity is receding from its moral imperative. At the same time, more and more production is harming the planet in a variety of ways and harming our society. Um, We're exploiting ourselves to work harder and in more instrumental ways. And the planet can't bear much more output. And there is a kind of grim logic of our age which is that productivity grows by exponential increase, but efficiencies grow by exponential decay. And the more efficient you get, the less waste there is left to save by efficiency. But the more you produce, the more an additional increment of productivity will produce in also waste. So the logic is such that productivity is gonna to have to end its growth at some point soon. And the final point I wanna just end on is that leads us to have to ask a very fundamental question, which is what is the purpose of work when Smith's mantra has outlived its usefulness? What is the point of production when we have enough or even too much consumption? And how should we structure our work lives so that work is not a technology to productivity, but a process that is valuable in itself? What's it like to work individually to make meaning in our lives? And what's it like to work together so that the workplace becomes a site of community, of democratic collaboration? and is valuable in the doing of the job, rather than for the output.
3: Thank you, Daniel. So, let's just begin with uh, our first uh, overall theme, which is, is it a mistake in the current circumstances to focus on productivity in the first place?
6: Daniel. Well, I think it depends on who you are and where you are. Um, if you're living, there are still 10 percent of the world's population, which is nearly a billion people, who live on under $2 a day. Those people desperately need increases in productivity. One might serve their interest by redistributing to them, but productivity is a much more politically palatable and effective way of removing really material misery that a billion people are subject to. On the other hand, for people elsewhere in the world, um, not all work is best understood in that way. Let me give one brief example, and then I'll, I'll stop. Think about the difference between the way in which a heart surgeon and a nurse works with a patient who has an unhealthy heart. The heart surgeon has no relationship with the patient. She simply sees an unconscious person, cuts the person open, stitches them back, up, and the value of that person's work is measured in productivity. How much does their intervention improve the health of the person? The nurse, helps the person restructure their lives, change their diet, change their exercise, reduce their stress. And the value of the nurse's work, his work depends on forming a relationship with the patient. And the relationship is valuable not just as a means to the end of the patient's health. And so for those people, measuring work in terms of productivity mismeasures something that's extremely important. And if we have more time, we can talk about what share of the economy either is or should be structured in this non-instrumental way, as opposed to in the instrumental way.
3: So you you mentioned there are a billion uh, people who you thought could require productivity. Are you saying the other seven billion shouldn't be focused on productivity?
6: No, so I think there are a billion people who are living under $2 a day, roughly. There are a lot more people who are living below the threshold at which they don't need more stuff. And those people also need more output or redistribution to make their lives materially better. But there are many people, including I suspect many people in this room, who are living at a point at which what is most important in making their lives go better is not extracting more income by exploiting their own labor, but rather finding ways to do tasks that they think are intrinsically meaningful, that forge valuable relationships with others in the doing of them, that create democracy and meaning in their lives, and for those people, Productivity is not the principal driver of their well-being going forward and shouldn't be what they aim at, although for a variety of structural reasons, our political economy and our social morality trains us to aim at productivity.
3: You seem, though, to indicate that that means most of the people in the richer nations in the world.
6: I don't know if I would say most of the people, because there's a lot of maldistribution in the richer nations of the world, too. And so, so give us a,
3: a sense of what, what sort of numbers are you, are you talking about, what percentage? So,
6: so I think it's hard to be precise, and I'm not trying to avoid the question. <laughs> but but um, in the UK, uh, people on a household income of, let's say, over 80,000 pounds a year. In the US, $100,000 a year which puts you in roughly the top third of the distribution, above the mean, but not in the narrow elite. These are people whose lives would be better improved by focusing on community and meaning than on additional income. But it's important to understand that there's a structural problem here, which is that we have in the labor market and we have a society which does not give many opportunities for the kinds of meaning-making work that I'm describing. And so even if in principle people would be better off doing this sort of work, it's not clear that it's available to them. There's not an employer who will give them that job or a location in which they can do it.
3: Okay, so uh, Martin, for, for a significant proportion of people then, Daniel's asking, uh, uh, saying we shouldn't be pursuing productivity, would you agree? Up to a point. Um, a lot of up to a points
4: on the panel. <laughs> I, 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 I will do my best to clarify our positions. Mar- Mar- well, I tend to think that, uh, this is where I've ended up now in my late 70s, that most of life consists of painful trade-offs without simple answers. I hate to say that, and I'm not gonna change that view just because you'd like me to. Uh, the, um, so I do think that, well, first of all, I want to emphasize very strongly what Daniel started with. I started my life as a development economist. It's remained a dominant concern of mine. And I would have made exactly the same point that had another minute on the, uh, and I'm very delighted Daniel did, on where we started 200 years ago, because the tendency of some people to regard all the material and associated progress of the last 200 years as a snare and delusion is a pretty mildly a very serious mistake, among other things about 80% of you would not be alive. The population growth obviously is a function of that. One of the problems creating, success creates problems. Uh, And um, in addition to the bottom billion who are borderline destitute, the sort of people who as a result of COVID and the disruption of COVID have died in very large numbers which we don't think about, I've written about this. So poverty matters, right? And the ability to cope with trauma like COVID for societies was immeasurably increased by the fact that we're just so rich. We could do something. I'm not saying it was wise, but we couldn't even imagine before, which was in response to a major disease, close down large parts of the economy and stay at home. That's because we were so rich and productive and other countries couldn't. And I would say something like three quarters to 80% of humanity. And that would be consistent with Daniel's figures are still in the, the realm in which Higher output per head will make a great deal of difference. The second point I would make is, even if we don't want productivity per head in aggregate, we still need a hell of a lot of innovation, which is really what productivity is about. To me, it's the ability to do more with less. You now, To take one example, we wanted, to, which is pretty crucial, and I discuss at great length in this book, uh, which is, we need an energy revolution. We all agree with that. We're going to have to move away from a fossil fuel based economy to a renewables based economy. Because the alternative, of course, is massively to shrink the energy input into our economies. And I promise you that will make us very much poorer in all sorts of obvious ways. Just think about all the ways you use energy, heating and cooling and refrigeration and transport and so forth. That will take a monstrous technological revolution. Uh, We have making quite a lot of progress in that, but that will all go into higher productivity. If we're successful, we could even in theory have limitless free energy or something like it. Let's suppose we did do that, that'd be terrific. It would be colossal increase in productivity, by the way, which we could take, and that's the final point, which we could take in a number of different ways. We could decide not to consume more, but just live lives of greater leisure. Uh, We could decide to pay more to people who we do think are doing rather valuable things of the type you mentioned. These are social decisions. But the point I'm making is that in these two pretty clear dimensions, uh, the energy revolution we desperately need, and the state of the vast number of still very poor people in the world, um, I would say something like 80% of humanity, productivity really matters. What we do with it, that's the really big social question.
3: And do you think that, as far as governments are concerned, they should be focused on productivity, given your, there are areas where you think, well, productivity is not the only thing that we should be pursuing, but should governments be focusing on productivity for those nations in the West who are relatively wealthy?
4: Well, there are two aspects to this. One, which we haven't got into, is the crude politics of our society. let's get away the productivity question. Let's decide that we want a zero-growth economy. It is not the same thing, as I've tried to suggest, but let's suppose we do. Then all distributional, all questions in the society around politics so forth become by their nature zero-sum because you're not going to have more output so if you're going to give more to some people you're going to take away from others and my view is like it or not that one of the reasons we managed our democratic system reasonably successfully and got it survived. Democracy is a freak historically. Is that we have positive sum society. So getting rid of output increases will create very large political challenges. And we're seeing this in Britain now. The second point I would make is consider one of the most. So does ob- that mean that governments do have to focus on They That if they don't, there will be. No, a but big, does that mean that they If they do have don't, to- they will have to face some other very big challenges. And so, I think. They do have to increase okay, output if ideally subject to the constraint of how they organize their society to do so and how they use the resource, what they do with the resources that go into it. Those are very big, important issues. The only other point I would make is let's suppose we could revolutionize health so most of the things we need to do in health could be done vastly more efficiently, vastly more cheaply with a, a few pills. Okay, We would want that, wouldn't we? Okay.
3: Madeleine, we do need productivity. Governments need to focus on productivity.
5: I think it's very easy to to bash productivity, um, especially from a, from a non-economic point of view. Like if you're talking about values, then that's a particularly easy, easy bashing. <laughs> um, because there's all sorts of problems with how productivity is, is used or how productivity figures are used now. Um, I would say that there are lots of reasons why we should be, why we should view productivity as a friend. So of course, so things like um, part of the reason why our productivity um, is potentially low is because we're not investing enough. We're not investing enough in skills, in management. So those things, they're really good. <laughs> I, you know, it, you can't say no. We don't want um, we don't want higher productivity, but yes, we do want all the things that <laughs> that, that productivity will bring. Without a little bit of um, sort of cohering those positions, but I suppose that is more or less my position with some caveats that basically the 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 fruits of or rather the the foundations of productivity in our country are clearly good things to aim at and it could be our and it could be our friend but I mean it's interesting you said about sort of you know you can do more with less I think the problem is that we don't do more with less we actually focus on putting more in and getting more and then we might do with less somewhere down the line but actually. We never really get to the well why don't we try doing more with why don't we try doing with less <laughs> less then? so I think that there needs to be um, I mean that ultimately is in the realm of culture rather than the government, but the government will have a role here, particularly um, sort of greening the economy. That's a huge challenge which obviously the government's going to have to
3: be okay. About. Daniel, we should be focusing on productivity.
6: Yeah, I want to say something to Martin's observation about the zero-sum world in the politics, which I think identifies maybe the central political challenge for the rest of this century. And when one talks about a zero-sum world in the absence of new gains in productivity, one is measuring the sum in terms of money, in terms of GDP measured by dollars. And as long as GDP is measured in that way and the sum is measured in that way, we will be in a zero-sum world if we can't grow and increase productivity, and the politics will be extremely dark for all the reasons that Martin identifies. Uh, At the same time, there are other ways to think about the total or aggregate well-being of a civilization. And before 1800, no civilization would have thought of its well-being in terms of GDP. And there are ways to lead a positive-sum world, even without increasing GDP if we measure the sums by human flourishing, by connections, by the, the substantive well-being of the civilization that we manage to produce. The difficulty is, you know, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. And the, the zero-sum view, the GDP view, is the product of two centuries of intellectual work, of institution building, and of enormously morally and politically potent cultural development. And identifying that it will become a problem once growth stops is not the same thing as constructing the imaginative alternative that we will need to survive that problem. Uh, My view is one of the great tasks of intellectuals of the moment is to start working towards that alternative. But to be responsible in that one has to acknowledge both the enormous moral achievement of the market-based view and the fact that we are still living in it and wishing we weren't won't get us out of it, and denying its accomplishments won't make us, help us to see the problems that need to be solved as we do get out of it. Okay, so, so sorry, Martin. This is really, really
4: important, because I think, and it's probably a point, we need disagreement, so this is, uh, because this is an incredibly important issue. I agree completely about the way we frame GDP, and that, but I won't go into that. So in the, all the many centuries before anybody invented GDP, um, what was society like? And I would say it behaved exactly as one would expect uh, a society with very, very limited wealth and a very limited number of people who controlled the wealth, kings and aristocrats with a few others, to behave. They didn't need to know GDP, they knew they wanted everything. And the So one of the most fascinating pieces of historical research, and this is increasingly now empirically supported, is that organized societies, large states and so forth, in the pre-modern period were as unequal as they could be. That is to say, 80 to 90% of the population Uh, the people Daniel was talking about lived on the more margin of survival and most of them were agricultural laborers. All their surplus was extracted by the top. That was the ultimate zero-sum society and it became maximally unequal. So my concern, my concern is when we go, since I'm a pessimist, When we go to our new zero-sum society, and I think we've been moving towards it over the last 30 or 40 years, it becomes increasingly unequal because that's what human beings do. And the extractive regime at the top, and there are many examples of this, becomes the dominant mode. So while I would like to believe you know, in, the, in this glorious moral revolution, I am deeply concerned that as we become more static, we go back to the zero sumness of the 17th, 16th, 15th century or ancient China, one of the most extreme examples
6: in history, and that really is something we have to think about. So, so this is extremely important, and we agree in some ways and disagree in others. Um, here's where we agree. One of the things that the productivity revolution and the market societies that produced it have achieved is to corral the process of getting for me into a form that has some positive product for others, as opposed to the prior ways of doing this, which were purely extractive, self-interested, and exploitative, and therefore very damaging. So I think we agree about that. the place where we might disagree, and I don't know how deeply, uh, you know it's a little bit old Hegel, you know thesis, antithesis, synthesis. The future cannot be a return to the past for all the reasons Martin identifies and a thousand others also, including that moral pluralism has led a certain cat out of the bag that the past controlled by suppressing. But at the same time, I don't think we should be trapped in the tyranny of no alternatives and think that the way in which people were before 1800 is the way in which we naturally or inevitably are. Uh, the way in which people naturally are is probably the way in which they ordinarily are. That is to say, we're enormously malleable by our social circumstances. And uh, it is a hopeful thing to say that we can create social circumstances that will shape us in a way that managed to retain the gains for cohesion and other regardingness of the productivity revolution while discarding what are now the costs. There's no certainty that we can do that but we have no alternative but to work in that direction because the alternative is environmental calamity and collapse for all of us. So maybe your pessimism is right, Martin, maybe it's not. In some sense, I'm not sure it matters. We have to act as if it's not right in our motives while retaining all the skepticism in order that we can act effectively.
3: Okay, let's um, move on to our, 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 our Our next theme and we will come to the question of what might replace productivity a bit later on. So there is in a sense a remarkable level of agreement uh, on the panel that uh, we can't simply abandon productivity, that productivity uh, has a vital role even though we might look for alternatives. Now one of the questions is what is it that creates productivity in the first place? Is it technology? that really drives productivity. And is, do we now have a problem with technology or is it our solution? Madeline?
5: So I think this is where the economic um, issues collide with the cultural, cultural issues around productivity and, and the sort of personal cult of being as productive as I possibly can, like bullet journaling, et cetera, et cetera, because technology is clearly a tool I mean, nobody would say that the plow was part of a pro- part of the problem. There are some technological advancements that clearly do just improve things, but I guess behind this question, the kinds of technology that we're now looking at, um, often sort of artificial intelligence or um, tech, sort of computer solutions, those things can be used to drive efficiencies, or they can be massive distractions. I think that's just that's just clearly a given. I think what's interesting um, in the way that you you framed it in terms of pointless activity is that pointless we don't we don't really normally use that word to mean without point we actually mean kind of useless and actually that is an economic way of thinking that has sort of almost insidiously leaks into how we think about these things i would say that you know since we're talking about we're talking globally but we're thinking about in our situation what's, what's the role of technology um we also have to think about the roles of those technologies in other areas of our life apart from work and that is also part of the holistic measure so actually what we mainly use sort of computers for in general in life most of us is social media keeping in contact with people like downtime and that that is part of a holistic view of human flourishing which isn't just removed from a productivity game so I think I suppose we need to think in terms of the the world of work, then it can be used well or badly. More broadly in society, I think that there are some ways in which we are approaching this question, which um, almost are trying to impose economics on what should really be freedom.
3: Yes. But in order to try and understand what's going on, we've got this extraordinary situation, 20th century as much increase in productivity in the previous 2,000 years. Is that in the end, Martin, down to technology? And is technology the reason that we have a problem now?
4: Much more than um, in the previous 2,000 years. I mean, there's no doubt much more. The, uh, but I don't want to go into the measurements. I think in this context, we have two rather different points. We've defined this in terms of productivity, and we've talked about GDP. Productivity is essentially about the relationship between the quantum of inputs, particularly labor, when you probably, though, economists would also talk about capital in relationship to measure GDP. The reason I'm un- uncomfortable with productivity and want to talk about it in much broader terms in welfare is there are some unbelievably important areas where productivity is improved enormously, which aren't part of GDP. And uh, you, we measure GDP per unit in terms of the things you buy, but not of the value that it gives consumption. Welfare isn't really in there, but just to have, to take household production. So we have had a massive increase in the productivity of the household. One of the consequences of that is a, the biggest one of the consequences. There are other aspects of it, probably the biggest positive social revolution of my life, which is that basically every pretty well every woman can expect a reasonable career. Now that's a transformation and we got rid of servants mostly. Now, that's not in GDP, it is productivity. But, so we have to be very clear that mm-hmm. productivity is not a, in conventionally measured, it's not a very good measure of Sure, but in a
3: way we're all, ag- all agreed. There are other things in productivity, we've discussed well, it already. Is productivity. But, but as far as productivity is concerned, is that driven by
4: technology? No. And given the fact, no, it's not. It is it. driven by technology and organization and, the, and revolutions in organization Uh, Both positive such as the invention of the corporation, and fundamentally, and this is the real nub of this, by the competitive process, which forces the dissemination of innovations created as a result of opportunity perceived by entrepreneurs, business people, and sometimes governments, through the whole economy. Technology doesn't do anything on itself. Okay, so if it's something... It is a product of a social order and transformative. We shouldn't think of it as something somehow out there all on its own, which does things to us.
3: So why, why is it then then in all of these different countries with different governments and different ways of intervening, they all have a
4: problem with productivity? This is where I got back to the beginning. I think that the, we have had a machine which has generated staggering revolutions in organization, production and technology, and we have probably exhausted all the easy ones in all these dimensions, and that's why we're seeing this very deep-seated problem. That's where I started the discussion.
6: Okay, Daniel. Um, I'd say two points. Um, First is, and, and this may sound like a definitional quibble, and I wonder what you think about this, Martin, Um, If by technology you mean robots and algorithms, then you have a a particular view. But if by technology you also mean social technologies, then much more of productivity growth is driven by technological innovation. The corporation, in a way, I think of as a technology. uh, Another one that turns out, for example, very important is the vertical office building. That was necessary for the creation of the modern professional services firm because it meant that you could put mind workers at a density needed for getting agglomeration externalities. Is that technological or not? In a way it doesn't matter. The reason it does matter is it's really important to focus on innovations more broadly because they allow you to emphasize one other question, which is what is the difference between the private return to innovation and the social return? And if you think about, for example, the field I work in law, particularly US American law, US American elite legal practice and legal scholarship in the past 30 or 40 years has been enormously innovative. Massive legal innovations, the market for corporate control, the poison pill, the contractual technologies needed to manage high frequency arbitrage trading. These are all inventions of lawyers. They all have an enormously high return for the lawyer who invented them. My view is they have a zero or negative social product. And it's really important to focus on the question, what are the incentives for innovators to innovate in a way that produces an appropriate balance between private product and social product? And to go back to something we talked about right at the beginning.
3: I'd like you to stick to the theme that we're trying to identify here, which is (laughs) what is the reason for this change right. in productivity? And is it technology? Good. And if it's not technology, is it something else?
6: Yes. So I want to connect these two. I, I, I will do my sincere, I'm in good faith here to go back to the point you're asking, which is the following. Look, when you have a system of economic and political organization that induces innovators to innovate in ways so that when they get private gains from their innovation, society also gets better off then it turns out that technological innovation produces a great deal of social productivity. But when you have a system in place that gives innovators an incentive to innovate in ways that give them a larger share of a smaller pie, then technological innovation undermines the growth of total social productivity. And for a variety of reasons, political and social, and I think also economic, we have over the past 30 or 40 years moved more towards the second kind of system which gives an incentive for privately profitable but socially unproductive innovation. And in that setting, technology is not gonna be the driver of growth, but in the prior setting that was also described, technology will be the driver of growth. And it's to some degree up to us politically to choose which situation we wanna be in.
3: All right, so let's move to our our, our final theme, which is will productivity recover? We've had this extraordinary experience in the 20th century, that's been history. We seem to be coming to an end of that. There seems to be a lot of agreement between you that that's the case. Will it recover? And we'll come on then to question, is there an alternative to productivity that we can put it in place? But let's just start with that first thing. Is it going to recover? Um, Let me come to you,
4: Martin, first. I, you hate my answers uh, so. Uh, because, <laughs> I don't hate because, <laughs> because My answer is I don't know, but I know. But well, they, what do you but, think? But this is what I think. They and I'm very glad Daniel added in this element of the social context. In my book, I call it Ranchier capitalism, broadly defined. So there are two questions about the recovery, as I indicated in the moment. Those innovations that are coming into the productive system, so we're going back to GDP, aren't big enough to be transformative at scale. The energy revolution might be, but I think at this stage, fusion would change a lot, to give you an example. I mean, really a lot, right? Uh, there's no doubt about that. But so as the things- a technological done, solution you have. That, that. As things stand at the moment, technology, including AI, doesn't seem to me transformative enough for the whole economy to start generating the sort of growth rates we had 50 or 60 years ago. And in addition, and here I agree completely, the social structure we have now recreated, which I think is a return to oligarchy, uh, which is linked to my 18th century view, uh, is also in the way. And for those two reasons, we are very unlikely to see a return to the sort of productivity growth we saw in the mid-20th century.
3: Okay, aren't we agreed on that? Would would you agree with that?
5: Yes, I would say that um, I'm coming at it from a non-economic angle and will certainly submit to your economic analysis. One additional point I would like to highlight is um, a statistic which always gets me, which is since 1751, half of all our emissions have been since 1990. And I think that shows that something has to change, and that therefore like, how we define recovery is I, I think at the, heart of, at the heart of this question, but on everything else then I
6: obviously uh, Would you agree? Just, just one sentence to add. I think Martin is obviously right that we can't know the details, but my short answer is still no, for the following crass and unsubtle logic. Um, if the next 250 years are gonna look like the last 250 years, then by 2,500 there will be 100 billion people on the planet who are on average 30 times as rich as the average citizen of Poland is today. That will not happen. So So in that sense, no.
3: So in which case there is a a rough agreement with you you, that we're not going to carry on as we have been. We're at some sort of turning point in history. We've had a remarkable century. Uh, we, We are heading somewhere else. And obviously the question is, well, where are we heading? And what alternative might there be to productivity as uh, an economic uh, goal? And um, who would like to go Daniel? Daniel?
6: Uh, I just want to ask a question of the audience to introspect while the others speak, which is this. How many of you work at the job that maximizes your market wage? And I suspect the answer is not that many, that many of you have made a choice to do something other than what the market pays the most. And if that's true, you've sacrificed productivity as measured by GDP, maybe not as measured in a more capacious way, in favor of some other value. And and if one's in that position, the question is, well, why did I do that? What was the other value? How can that other value, if I think it's an important value, be injected into our social structure and our politics? And what would need to be the case for others to be free to make the same kind of choice that I've Daniel, made, and how question, would they make it?
3: The question I was asking is, what do you think right. should be the alternative to right. productivity? And,
6: right. and, and, but the reason why I want to answer in this way is that one of the great appeals of productivity as a measure is that prices are set from everybody's perspective in the market. It's supply and demand. And none of us has to win a moral argument about what things are worth in order for us to know the price. But as soon as we move away from prices, we're going to have moral arguments about what kind of community is worthwhile, about what kinds of activities and processes are intrinsically meaningful, and which ones are depraved. And we're going to disagree about that. And we will then need a politics that enables us to manage that disagreement. And the the question, the right answer to the question is not what I think. what 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 do we collectively think is the right kind of politics.
3: So what are you you proposing?
6: Well, um, so I can say things abstractly. Democracy writ large and small is very important here. So not just democracy in our nation states and our political processes that way, but also democracy in our organizations and our workplaces, creating systems whereby those who do things can get together to decide how they shall be done and what their value is. That's very important. Um, to say more in detail, and look, I, I want to be, I, I am resisting this question now for the following reason. <laughs> Thank you for admitting Yes, it. yes. <laughs> look, look, it took two centuries of intellectual work to develop the answers that the productivity society has developed. It is not something that someone can do to invent an answer to this now. And the right way to go about seeking the answer is not to come forth with a proposal and try to persuade everybody else of it, but it's to identify the question and talk about how we as a culture and civilization need to work together to come up with an answer that we can then live with. Okay. That's what we should be doing rather than trying to answer the question.
3: All right. Do you um do you have a proposal of how we might go about thinking of what this alternative could be?
5: Sort of, yeah. I mean, so there already there's a short proposal and a slightly more nebulous one. And um, there already exist things like human flourishing indexes, which we can look at, and those are, are measuring some things which um, are obviously important to human flourishing. And I and I would I would say that we want to be foregrounding um basically human flourishing in our measurement, but zooming out my slightly more nebulous answer is that i think we can still measure productivity it's quite a good shortcut for all of the for all of the reasons we've 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 outlined it does show how much we're investing our skills it, it does improve people's quality of life um more I want to see us reminding ourselves why we're measuring productivity and just to use an analogy here, I come from a a theological background, um, the biblical prophetic tradition are constantly those prophets are constantly telling people you're following rules and you've forgotten why, you're measuring something you've forgotten why, you've lost sight of justice and those prophets are operating in the context of a covenant between the people and in their case God and I think I'm not suggesting that we all launch back into the prophetic tradition. But basically, we need to draw back into that kind of covenantal relationship with one another, actually, and understand why we're measuring the things we're measuring. And fundamentally, that's about human relationships. So I suppose in some ways, it's not a very radical proposal. Like, carry on measuring productivity, but don't do it as we are now, is my proposal.
4: Martin. I'm going to... Um, end this by making you really angry because I'm not going to answer the question and I'll explain why. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a whole book full of proposals and you can all dream them up. <laughs> uh, 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 it would take a long time. And they're, I think we need to be, I want to leave you with this. This is a really serious moment in world history and not just about dreaming better worlds. Not that I, I object to it. On the contrary, it's necessary, essential. But I think the actual situation we're in, in this relatively stagnant society that we have and which we foresee for the future is in which the democratic achievement, and it is, I think we agreed, an enormous achievement, is mortally threatened by authoritarian oligarchy. That's where we actually are. And if they win, and they're not that far away from winning, all this debate will disappear. Um, So I think I would start by saying we have to preserve a society of depending on broad consensus against the authoritarians who want to preserve the existing system and make it worse. That means, this is crucial, that we are going to have to persuade the public at large and win elections on these new proposals. And there is no shortcut to that. And it's probably gonna take a while. And we have to recognize how significant this challenge is. And part of that is creating a public political environment in this country where Keir Starmer actually has a program. (laughs) And he doesn't have one for a reason. That's the key thing. He doesn't have a program for a reason. He doesn't think he will ever win. So in terms of where we might be going,
3: you, you sort of obviously docked the question, but can you give us an indication of where you think that we might be going? So if you have the banner, they're taking us foreigners, where's your banner
4: going? Uh, my view is that the things we have to do in the near term are uh, take on the run-tier capitalist model I have a politics which is built around social welfare, which will be include obviously distribution, and will certainly include quite a bit more tax. And by the way, oh, oh, this is, you can only say this at the FT when you're nearing retirement. And, the, <laughs> and, and, and you have to recognize, you're gonna have a fantastic amount of opposition even
6: to that. And preserving consensus through that process is going to be a hell of a challenge. I think Martin is right about all of this. And I think the way in which the politics has to go is we have to begin with programs and policies that have the feature that when you win, you deepen and enlarge your coalition rather than contracting it. So that's gonna mean some tough choices. But for example, one thing that is important is there is an available large coalition for democratizing education for reducing the stranglehold that elite schools and universities have on our societies by forcing them through a variety of carrots and sticks to open themselves up to the whole population and increase the number of students they enroll and reduce the gap between the poshest education and the ordinary education. And when you achieve that, you then create a new class of people who are tied into the values of those institutions and will push for further reform. And the most important thing about these kinds of policies is that when you win, you go stronger rather than seeking things where, when you win, you produce a massive backlash, which enrages and empowers the other side.
1: Well, that was an interesting talk.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on the platform of your choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.